Usually, when you hear about someone with a criminal record of 15 arrests before their sophomore year of high school, you don't really think that there's any hope for them. Well, today's story is about an athlete that turned what he learned from those 15 arrests into an NBA championship ring, two NBA all-star selections, and numerous, numerous multi-million dollar contracts. So without further ado, let's get into the levels of Karan Butler's story. Karan Butler was born on March 13, 1980, in Racine, Wisconsin. His grandparents had moved there from the South, and his mother had given birth to him when she was only 14 years old, obviously still living with her mom, Karan's grandmother, and his father left before he was born to go join the Marines. His uncles exposed him to drug dealing at a very young age, very like ridiculously young age. And it wasn't like they were just telling him stories about it. Karan recalls that he literally saw everything go down inside his own home from, you know, garbage bags of money, people moving coke, people hustling on all levels. They'd get arrested and go away, you know, to jail for a year and a half, two years. But when they got back in town, you know, returned to the streets they would receive this incredible amount of respect. It was as if they were, you know, legends in their own right. And that is what drew him to that lifestyle early on. So he starts doing little runs here and there when he's 10 or 11 years old. But by the time he turns 12, he's really in it, even saved up enough to buy a 38 revolver. So he's carrying around a gun at 12 years old. He never did drugs but selling it was definitely, definitely his thing early on. And he started just raking in cash. So what's a kid supposed to do with that kind of money other than, you know, buy a gun? He starts to buy cars, specifically former drug dealers cars who had gone to jail thinking that he could just, you know, hop in and pick up right where they left off. So think about that for a second. The police already know that a former drug dealer owned the car made runs in the car. It's a caddy, you know, with nice rims. Some new kid buys it. It's basically a tip to them that, and and he's just setting himself up to get caught. His mom would come home from work and pass out, you know, go to bed. And that's when he'd sneak out the window and hit the streets. She'd work overtime shifts at work and he'd still, still find ways to sneak out at night after she got home and went to bed. And every time she found out he was on the block, She'd drive literally all around town, jump out the car, and chase him off the streets. So much so that everyone around town knew who she was, knew who his mother was. And they'd be like, ah, here she, here she comes again, and take off. Karan ends up getting arrested around 15 times for, you know, various reasons. But I did want to highlight a few instances that he recalls of when he got arrested uh the first the first one when he was only 14 years old so drug deal goes down 
He has a pistol on him and narcotics, and the ATF shows up, arrests him. He didn't get released until 13 months later. So what's important to note about this story isn't the actual arrest. I have a, a crazier one later, but what's important to note is that he was in county jail for four months, and then he gets transferred to Ethan Allen School for Boys. But during his transit, his mother, who has still not given up on him, literally chasing him around town, trying to trying to you know correct his behavior, put him on the right path. His mother, when he gets transferred, literally trails the van that transferred him in her car. And during the drive, both him and her recall that the car overheats and all of a sudden there's smoke coming out of the car and she keeps going. Tears are just, you know, streaming down her face. She's praying to God that she makes it there with her son. And all she's thinking about is how it might be better for him to just see her out that back window of the transfer van. Just know that she's there for him and she hasn't given up on him. She cares. It definitely, definitely was better for her because one, she'd know how to get to the correctional facility, but two, so she knew that her baby, you know, 14-year-old child was doing okay. One of the things that Quran talks about later in life that he remembers about this time is that he didn't actually learn his lesson right away. You know, obviously 15 times in jail, you can kind of assume that early on. But what's incredible about this story is that his mother, regardless of how many times he goes to jail, still did not give up on him. He was in jail that first time for 13 months, right? His mom came to see him almost every other day. He recalls back then that most of the other kids in juvie with him, their parents had, you know, given up on them relatively quickly, but his mom working two jobs and still taking care of his younger brother still came to see him as often as she could. Now I want to talk about another crazy story, as I said, uh, about him getting sent to prison, but I'm not exactly sure where this falls on the timeline of his arrests and his childhood and I'm actually not sure. <laughs> I'm guessing that he doesn't know either because it must all be a blur at this point. But I'm pretty sure it's one of the last times or towards the end uh, of the amount of times he gets, he gets arrested. So one morning, he gets this page from a guy that he's interested in buying a quarter ounce of crack cocaine. And he's in school at the time, but the school's getting ready to expel him because of all his tardiness, his unexcused absences. You know, he's got terrible grades. So he's thinking, all right, when this guy pages me, I'll leave school, get the money and just come right back. No one will know that I, I'm, I missed out on anything. So he puts his gun in his school locker with about $1,200 in cash and has the cocaine in his pocket, you know, on his person during school, the school hours. But he never gets the page. The ATF ends up bursting into the school and the windows of the classroom wouldn't open all the way, right? Like they're the, the windows that just crack open at the bottom a little bit. And he obviously, if he could have gotten out the window, he would have taken off running, but he ends up getting apprehended by the ATF and sent to jail once again. And I think it's at this point that he gets put into solitary confinement for two weeks and it's finally there that he truly starts to realize that he's got two choices to make. You know, he can either go back to the life 
he'd been living. He had a decent pathway to make some serious money carved out, but there's obviously the threat of even more jail time having to hurt someone else or the potential of him getting hurt or even killed. Or he could focus up, get a serious job, and, you know, try to become a better person. Lose the ankle bracelet. And it's right about this point that, you know, he gets out of jail and is asked to join this Nike traveling basketball team by a guy named Jamil Laguari. But he's not out of trouble just yet, right? He's made the decision to, to, to figure it out, to, to straighten up, starts playing basketball. But he, there's one more crazy story that happens. So let's fast forward just a little bit. He's going to Racine High School, Racine Park High School, and, you know, starting to focus on basketball, academics, working a job at Burger King now. He's becoming the standout athlete and is actually considered one of the top basketball players in the state. There's even a, there's a, a magazine cover of him with Tony Romo, of all people, in high school. Go look it up. It's You can just look up, you know, Karan Butler, Tony Romo, high school basketball. Tony Romo looks so young. Karan actually has been quoted as saying that uh, he thought Tony Romo could have easily gone on to become a professional basketball player. But anyways, where this story gets crazy is on one normal spring day, he suddenly, you know, he's just chilling in his room. He hears three large hits just boom at his front door and looks out of his second floor bedroom window to see everyone on the street staring up at his house, cop cars all around, lights flashing everywhere. And he realizes that it's he's being it's a raid. He's being raided. But he he wasn't concerned because, you know, he knows that he's been on the straight and narrow. So the cops come up, rushing up the stairs, throw him on the ground, search the entire house and they don't find anything. But then. They go check out the backyard garage and they end up finding about an ounce of cocaine and he starts to freak out. You can imagine, you know, like what would, what would you do? Your mind starts to race if this, in this situation and out of nowhere, out of nowhere, this cop, Lieutenant Geller says, I don't believe it's his, I'm not going to charge you. And they just let him go. They just let him go. Imagine how different this story would have been if that cop, if Lieutenant Geller hadn't have given him the benefit of the doubt. He, he, he would have been sentenced to 10 to 15 years in prison. And we may have never even known the name Karan Butler. So at this point, he's an incredibly talented Hooper. He averaged just under 25 points, 11 rebounds a game at Racine. He just needed to get out of his current situation. So he ends up getting a loan from someone he knew to pay for his first year at Maine Central Institute, MCI. And he starts working on his craft religiously, just every day playing basketball. One of the lesser known reasons that Butler actually transferred to Maine Central was because he ran into some issues of eligibility with the Wisconsin Athletic Association. So the WIAA actually ruled that although he was competing athletically as a junior, it was actually his fourth year of high school. And a secondary ruling was also due to his academic performance, right? His grades were terrible. And Maine Central was known to have a strict curfew and mandatory study tables to help him turn his academics around, right? It's actually at this time that because he's one of the best players in the state, right? Purdue University starts to show a lot of interest in Butler and multiple news outlets at the time are speculating that, you know, he's going to verbally commit there pretty soon. 
He also received a ton of interest from schools like UConn, UNLV, Wisconsin, Georgetown, and Michigan. And, you know, it's it was funny just kind of reading through some of the speculation and news outlets articles about him back then. Everyone was just thinking, you know, oh, he's going to Michigan. Oh, he's going to UNLV. He's going to um, Purdue, all yada, yada. But finally, after all the speculation, first with Purdue, you know, was the main one. Then with him going to UNLV after the MCI head coach, Max Good, gets hired there as uh, on the UNLV staff. Finally, after all of that, on August 4th, 1999, he verbally committed to UConn as one of the top small forwards in the country. And he committed there claiming that his decision was entirely due to the style of play and the coaching staff of the Huskies. So fast forward a little bit, his first year at UConn, he actually loses 15 pounds, right? So much for the freshman 15 and further developed his perimeter game. Now, remember that the Huskies had just won a championship two years earlier over Duke in 1999. And here comes this kid from Wisconsin who ends up leading the team in points and rebounds per game his freshman year with 15 and 7.5. That summer, he then goes on to start for Team USA in the FIBA Under-21 World Championships where they win the gold medal his sophomore year right he comes back to UConn he continues to improve this time he's averaging 20 and 7.5 leading UConn to a Big East regular season and tournament title and he was named Big East tournament MVP they you know end up losing in the elite eight of the NCAA tournament to Maryland despite Karan Butler putting up 32 in that game and once the season ends he finally decides, you know, it's time to go make some money. So he money makes some money the right way, I should put it, and declares for the NBA draft. And I think it's important to note that he actually knew going into the draft that he would get picked anywhere from third to 12th. But I don't think that he was prepared for how much patience it would take for him to sit there and wait for his name to get called, right? He's you know, stuff starts to go through your head, right? By the ninth, 10th picks, you're kind of like, oh my God, am I even going to get picked at all? Right. So in his book, it's, it's actually a great, a great segment. His book is called tough juice T U F F. You should definitely go check it out. It's on Amazon and on his personal website. If you want to support him crombutler.com, I think he has a great segment in the, in his book on his experience during draft night. And He's just sitting there looking at his manager who's getting call after call, constantly asking him if he got picked up. You know, his manager continues to answer phone calls, talking to all kinds of people, all kinds of teams. And he's just looking on at his manager in anticipation. His manager keeps shaking his head. No, not, no, not this one, not this one. And the picks start to go, you know, eight, nine. Finally, his manager looks up and he just cracks this huge smile. And no one else around Quran at the time, no one at the table saw that. So when, you know, David Stern gets on the stage and announces the 10th, the 10th pick in the 2002 NBA draft for the Miami Heat, he announces, of course, Quran Butler and the whole crowd, the table just absolutely lose it. So listen to this. This, this is a great quote from his book. I broke down and started crying. My mom started shaking. My grandmother started tearing up. And Andrea, 
which is his fiance at the time, was smiling from ear to ear. When I put my arms around my sobbing mother, she looked up at the ceiling and said, thank you, God. Thank you, God. As I headed up the steps into the spotlight to shake the commissioner's hand and face the nation as a professional basketball player for the first time, my first thought was, I made it. Now, just don't fall. Now, it's important to note that the year he was drafted, the Heat were actually in a pretty a re- a rebuilding season. So Butler ended up starting all 78 games he played in that season and averaged about 15 points, five rebounds a game, which actually earned him a spot in the rookie challenge game during All-Star Weekend. And eventually, by the end of the season, he was named to first team of the NBA All-Rookie Team, despite the Heat only winning 25 games that season. The next draft, the Heat get another lottery pick, and they end up drafting a guy by the name of Dwayne Wade. Right before, or sorry, right after that, they trade for Lamar Odom from the Clippers. So now he's on a team that's drastically different from the year before that season. They're the, now this season, Butler, you know, and this is kind of a trend throughout his career, is on a great team, but he starts to suffer from a number of injuries and only averaged about nine points a game. But he was able to put on a pretty decent performance in the playoffs of that year, right? 23-9 and nine in Game 7 against the Hornets in the first round of the playoffs, and then 21-10 and 10 in Game 4 against the Pacers, which they would go on to lose in 6. That offseason, the Miami Heat decide to completely change up the roster. So they trade Butler with Odom and Brian Grant to the L.A. Lakers for Shaquille O'Neal. He's now playing with Kobe and averaging 15 a game that season, right? But again, not necessarily with him, but injuries to the team and coaching changes I think they switched out head coaches halfway through that year, caused them to miss the playoffs, and he's traded again for Kwame Brown and LaRon Profit to the the Washington Wizards. In 2007, he posts career-high averages in points, rebounds, and assists, and was named as a reserve to his very first All-Star game. Then in 2008, he gets reselected to the All-Star game, but again, the trend of injuries he's sidelined due to a hip injury and can't actually play in the all-star game. 2010 is where it starts to get a little interesting. He gets traded to the Dallas Mavericks and they get upset in the playoffs by the Spurs that year. But 2011 he's ruled out and it just sucks because he has to undergo surgery and, you know, kind of foreshadowing here, but he undergoes surgery to rupture a right patella tendon and the Mavs go on to beat the Miami Heat 4-2 to in the NBA championship. So he wins a ring, but it definitely wasn't the situation he probably envisioned. You know, it's, it's just, it sucks. And there's an uh, a awesome quote from him and talking to Mark Cuban uh, about how, you know, Mark came to him after the injury and said, we're going to win this for you. And I just want to take a minute to really appreciate what he's done so far right is he's not he's not very old right he's 30 years old at 31 at this point and he's gone from in and out of prison 15 times to now an nba champion two-time nba all-star and he's making tens of millions of dollars a year legally (laughs) it's important to say that legally so after the championship he gets traded again 
to the Clippers, signs a three-year, $24 million contract and helps them reach the playoffs twice before getting traded again to the Suns in 2013. But not really, because just over a month later, he gets traded to the Bucks in a three-team deal. He was only on the Suns for, I think, oh, just over a month. 2014, he signs with the OKC Thunder, plays 22 regular season games, 17 playoff games, and they're defeated by the Spurs in the conference finals. Later that very same year, Butler signs another two-year, $9 million deal with the Pistons, but one year later, traded to the Bucks again, and the Bucks just waive him. A month after he gets waived in 2015, the Kings pick him up, but you know he doesn't get much playing time, averages just three points a game. And his final game happens on April 11th, 2016, where he records seven points, two rebounds, one assist, and one block in a 105-101 win over the Phoenix Suns. He then became a full-time college basketball and NBA analyst in 2017 before officially retiring in February on February 6th, 2018. In 2020, the Miami Heat announced that they hired Butler as an assistant coach, which as of this recording is where he's at to this day. And before I finish this, I, I always love finishing each episode out with a, a quote, but it's just ridiculous how much this guy has been able to overcome. And, you know, even though he wasn't on the court during that NBA championship, he put up some ridiculous numbers, made some incredible money, set his family up for life. And it could have gone either way, you know, when he's in solitary thinking about what to do. So I want to end this episode with a short quote from his mom, Maddie, because it just goes to show how much she sacrificed and just loved her children, loved Quran, and believed that he could finally figure out that drug dealing wasn't the right path and she never gave up on, on, on him. And she's working two jobs, taking care of another kid. It's just insane. So, so I'll finish it after this quote. And here it is. When I returned to the draft table, my mother told me with tears in her eyes, this is so wonderful. It's one of the happiest days of my life. We don't have to live like we used to live anymore. I don't have to get up in the morning and work into the night. My head can stop being heavy. I ate so much, it was like my body had a headache. That is going to disappear forever. Mm -hmm.